Welcome to episode 38 of the Cyber Guy Podcast. I'm your host, retired FBI Supervisory Special Agent Darren Mott. And in this episode, your IQ is going to go up a couple points as I talk to a former college suite mate, Bill Norton, who was there at the beginning of the internet, who has created a lot of the protocols that result in our ability to transfer information across the world and his designs for a safer, more private internet experience. But before I get to Bill, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking here at the beginning so I can get right into the interview uh, with Bill. But um, this past couple days, I have received several, several calls. I mean, I'm talking dozens of calls from 704 area codes um, that claim to be Molly from Amazon, stating that there's been a fraudulent charge of $729 and to click one to talk about how to resolve that. It's certainly a scam call. I know it's a scam call because it comes from a 705 area code. I live in Huntsville, Alabama, which has a 256 area code. Yet the phone number I have, I got years and years and years ago when I was living in Charlotte. So it's a 704 area code. So what bad guys do is they spam email, I mean, they spam area code numbers within specific area codes, thinking that if it's from the same area code they think you live in, you will more likely answer the call. I know every time I get a 704 call, that is a scam call. So I hope I listen to it just to hear what the particular scam of the day is. And the one going around currently seems to be this Amazon fraudulent uh, charge scam. What they are relying on is the fact that there will be more naive folks that don't pay attention to cybersecurity, um, members of our older class that have a more trust capability within them that when they get this, it sounds like it's legitimate, they're concerned about their finances. So they go through the machinations to talk to someone and try, try to resolve this particular um fraud scheme. Now, I've been trying, if I've been trying to, I've been hoping they would, they were calling me so I could record one of these calls. But the last three I've gotten, when I hit one to talk to a representative, it goes to a Muzak, like I'm on hold. So I figure I'm not waiting around for this. So hopefully, maybe for the next podcast, I can record one of these. But I say this just to make sure you remind your older relatives or older friends or neighbors to be on the lookout for scams like this and to never, ever Click, a, click on a button or talk to anyone who calls you claiming they have some kind of fraudulent scheme. If you claim to get a fraudulent email from your bank, go to the bank website directly or look on your bank statement and call the bank number directly on that statement. You know that's a legitimate number and you're not going to get a scammer. So I say all that to make sure people are aware of these scams going along and uh, to just kind of to, again, increase your awareness because, like I like to say, knowledge is power. Well, it's my honor to bring on to the Cyber Guy podcast a longtime friend, we, although we haven't spoken in many years, but uh, college roommates and author of the Internet Peering Playbook, co-founder and chief technical liaison officer of Syntropy, and a internet pioneer, William B. Norton. Bill, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I'm glad we could finally get this together. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Darren. So we're going to get into the beginnings of the internet, where it's kind of going. We'll talk some cybersecurity a little bit in the sense of, I'll be interested to get your perspective on how you know the future of the internet can impact cybersecurity, especially with what your company's doing to make it more distributed and use blockchain te- blockchain technology and things like that. But before we get there, we have to talk about SUNY Potsdam because oh, yeah. that's that is our common our common uh, relationship, and we have gotten to to similar points in life through different routes. Obviously, um, mine was a more circuitous route to get to the cyber world, and yours was a more direct route. Obviously, because you were a computer science major at SUNY Potsdam, correct? Or what was your no, major? I, yeah, I, I was going to say that mine was actually probably more circuitous than yours. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, what I ended up doing after Potsdam is I went to work for a consulting firm. And uh, they sent me down to Boca Raton, Florida, where I worked on the, uh, the, the IBM PS2 and OS2, the two products that were going to kill the clones and put Microsoft out of business. It <laughs> <laughs> uh, didn't work out that way. I, I ultimately um, I got recruited to go work at the University of Michigan to write PDP-11 assembler code for a router. This was across the state of Michigan. Hundreds of routers uh, connected the the major uh, universities together. And uh, I was supposed to be writing PDP-11 code. But uh, just around the time when I joined, uh, the NSFNet 
contract was awarded to the University of Michigan, uh, the state of Michigan, MCI, and IBM. And uh, that was the NSFNet backbone. That was the core of the internet. And I finagled a way to uh, do little projects on that project in order to be involved in something a little bit more forward-looking than uh, the PDP-11s. And uh, there was a, uh, Hans Werner Braun was the, uh, one of the principal investigators on the project. And he posted a video that shows me actually <laughs> finagling my way into that project <laughs> as opposed to the one that I was originally hired uh, to be on. And 10 years, um, that, that was probably the thing that launched my career because from that, I got to write the software that monitored the core of the internet called Internet Rover. And that software uh, became adopted uh, across a large number of uh, networks. Um, and uh, from there, I got to uh, be the, um, uh, the, the Nanog, what became Nanog, uh, the chair. Um, so this is the operations forum for the North American Internet. And I helped during that commercial uh, migration of the Internet uh, by being the Nanog chair for four years. Um, in 1998, I finished my MBA at the University of Michigan Business School, and I was recruited to go help launch a company that became known as Equinix. Uh, that was 10 years there from startup to IPO to almost going bankrupt to coming back <laughs> up. And uh, when I cashed out my stock options, I think the company was worth $3.6 billion. <laughs> which is Did you get it all in again, cash was it all in cash or was it in uh was it in uh credit cards uh, stacks of hundreds okay good good, good to know <laughs> i'd expect more guitars behind you then if you had that much <laughs> <laughs> i'd have much better guitars if i had that much um uh, so it, to me it was really interesting um because the uh, at the time the, the internet was the place where all my friends were were making all their they're, they're big money. Uh, University of Michigan, I worked with uh, Tim Howes and, and a bunch of other folks there. They were on my softball team. And slowly, Mark Andreessen was hiring away my softball team <laughs> un until we had uh, pretty much no one left. Um, we were never that good anyway. The University of Michigan um, softball team I was on, it was an um, uh, amateur league kind of thing. Uh, but we were really bad. We, we got mercied by a team called Grandpas and Grandsons. <laughs> okay <laughs> well hey <laughs> yeah, how bad happened. you were yeah. but uh, anyway i decided to go go out west and help launch equinix um 10 years of doing that i cashed out and then i i wrote a book that you mentioned the internet peering playbook that really captured yeah. the essence of what internet uh interconnections are like how is the internet formed uh when these networks of networks connect to each other uh when do they decide to do it and when do they decide no i don't want to interconnect with you there's this whole kind of black art called peering. And I was able to write a book that uh, really talked about all that. And um, that book led to consulting. You want to talk about circuitous. Um, <laughs> that sent me to start doing um, uh, consulting work all across Africa. Uh, 1,500 copies of my book were bought by the, the African Union. Uh, we did a train the trainers across the continent. Um, I did a lot of work in uh, South Africa and Kenya, Ghana, uh, Nigeria, Morocco. I mean, again, the circuitous, <laughs> this is far cry from sending out my cube at IBM and, and doing the job I was told to, to do. Right. Uh, since then, a lot of consulting gigs. Uh, but this Centropy thing is really exciting, probably the most impactful part of my career. And I hope we get a chance to talk about that. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I want to spend a good time talking about that. But before we get there, we gotta, I, we're going to go backwards in time. We're going to go back to SUNY Podstam because let's That's be honest. Let's be honest. This, is, this, this podcast today does not exist without the existence of SUNY Podstam. So if I remember correctly, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you may have a better memory or we may both have bad memories, but – I th we met when I was a freshman in college at in Dream Hall. Were you a Dream Hall yep. resident? Yep. So we lived there. Um, there was a group of friends of us that got together. And then we, the next year, your senior year, my sophomore year, we were suite mates with seven other guys. Right? Was it seven? Yeah, everybody, there was two in each. Uh, in Lehman Hall, suite 543. Quite a place. I remember. Suite, suite five. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> uh, and the highlight to my senior year was... One of Bill's first, I mean, one, as far as I know, one of his first creations. Now, he can talk about creating the Internet and creating the Centropy and the, the, the blockchain cryptocurrency NOIA, which we'll talk about. But his first true real creation was the Funnelator. 
so, so let's let's talk about the because we're going to talk about cyber stuff and, and and all that stuff. But I get we let's I don't have people like you on who we can talk these humorous, hum, more humanity type of things. But the funnelator, explain what the funnelator was, if you recall. Yeah, uh, well, I was always a bit mischievous, I'll confess. <laughs> and um, mm. well, what we did um, uh, was we went down into the um, laundry room and stole um, uh, a woman's brassiere initially, very large cup, and it held a water <laughs> balloon in it. And we got some surgical tubing from a drugstore. And we found that we could make even like, you know, five feet or so on each of four sides of the bra, the single cup of the bra. And we could pull that thing way back. So I had two of my sweet mates hold two of the rubber tubes on one side and another sweet mate held two of those tubes on the other side of the window. And we'd pull it back with a water balloon. And oh my gosh, that thing went far. Of course, we were on the fifth floor. Yep. So we had a large trajectory. And... Um, one shot we pulled way back and it went all the way across this large field and actually got pretty close to hitting a sunbather that was way over on the other side well, of the see, parking lot. I remember that differently. It hit her in the legs because <laughs> whatever the building was on the other side of the street, because it went across the street. She was sunbathing by herself because <laughs> I remember this vividly. It hit her on the back of the legs. Now, keep in mind, we weren't the the bra per version we were we were several versions in at this point because we ultimately well, went actually like, a funnel we got a funnel right plastic funnel and yeah. yeah it would go back a good 10 15 feet before we launched it but hit on the back of the legs and i remember we all ducked and started laughing and we looked up and she was looking straight up at the building she was next to because she's trying to figure out where it came from there's no way it could come from the building way over there. <laughs> right do you remember the the guy walking across in that same field that we launched one and it landed right between his legs where he was walking I don't remember. Yeah, that. and then and there was we launched a potato once that went <laughs> oh, over that, was, that building, that was, and they were having like a some kind of concert, something in the other in the Bowman Field. And I know we yeah. launched it. I don't know where that potato went, but we launched it, and it went over the other building into the Bowman Complex. So I don't. Hopefully, no one got hit. But yeah, that was that was really stupid. <laughs> but uh, yeah, <laughs> but I did what, so much dorm dorm damage, and I paid so much in dorm damage fees. <laughs> Um, the residence hall director, when I was graduating, he came up to me and said, I'm glad to see you're going. Yes, because I was there when I, I, I'm sure if Ed was the other holder of I was one of the holders of one of the sides <laughs> when we launched across the Lehman Quad and broke a window on the other side. I do recall that. So good times. Uh, and the other yeah. thing, the other thing to know about Bill, if, if you if you've only known Bill since his post Potsdam, he was also a guitar god at, at Potsdam, Potsdam, had a band. Right. Was did you have a band? Yeah, stage yes. fright. Stage fright, yes, stage fright, absolutely. Did you have T-shirts? Did- we did. Uh, we, we played out pretty much every weekend. That's uh, that was my fun. That was uh, just a whole lot of fun. We actually did the Spinal Tap thing where we played in Air Force Base. <laughs> <laughs> and I believe didn't didn't uh, Lori Connolly's have a jacket that said "Stage Fright" on the back? Yeah, um, that that was kind of fun. Um, Oh my gosh, you're, you're making my neurons tingle <laughs> remembering all this stuff way back in the day. You know, it, it turns out Mike Fafford, the keyboard player from Stage Fright, he kept the band going all this time, Darren. Oh, wow, he really? Stayed in this back. Uh, yeah, he's got a 70s kind of revival band called the Right On Band. And check this out. He's played for the inaugurations of all the presidents wow. since like Clinton. He was at the inauguration of Bush, the inauguration of Obama. So um yeah if you look on the right if you look for the right on band on youtube you'll you'll see he's still doing it okay um, yeah i got to look that up it. does he ever mention stage fright when he's talking about it like we, we started off as stage fright and so and then now we're this oh no no I, I think what what he's done with that band is a whole lot like another level or two above what stage fright did he's okay. got a whole production company he's got the light show he's got a horn section at one point he had the horn section from uh earth wind and, and fire or or cool in the gang one of those two wow yeah so he actually took it for real well you probably should tell him his, he's got a non-secure website i'm trying to get to the right and it says not secure but it says the world's greatest show band so cool. yeah anyway yeah he's been interviewed on tv a lot of times too yeah wow so that's funny so so let's talk so so let's go back to nsfnet your the, yeah. the the when the internet started rolling forward now first question that of course everyone is probably wondering did you know al gore 
<laughs> no, but you, you know, I, I got to say this: um, Al Gore and uh, a bunch of folks in Congress actually did support and push. Maybe he didn't invent the internet; he Fair did enough, not yeah. invent the internet. Right. But you know, without that support, without that seed funding, I mean, think about where we are now. Sure. As the fruit that spawned yep. from that investment and that evangelism. So uh, to me, hats off to Al Gore and all those that supported the project. But I will say all that funding created what is now our big crime issue with the Internet, with all of the nation states and criminal hackers using it to do bad things. So really, it's is it your fault or Al's fault that the Internet exists and all uh, these crime issues? It's your fault, FBI, guys. <laughs> yeah, because we couldn't. There's always been crime. There's always been That's violations true. of of. Uh, of use of things. And uh, I, I still point to the, the, uh, the Freakonomics uh, podcast where they said that um, there's enough $100 bills in circulation for each one of us to have 36 in our wallet. Wow. Now, I don't have $3,600 no. bills in my wallet. The point is these $100 bills are, are being used for illicit activities and circulated around um, to hide from uh, the U.S. government, at least with the blockchain types of stuff, the cyber, uh, the, the cryptocurrency stuff. Um, it's on a ledger. It's trackable. There's, right. It's not reasonable for, uh, for real bad guys to make use of this and expect to be hidden because it's out there in the public. Well, but I but the problem with cryptocurrency and, the, and from that perspective is it's a lot harder harder to or it's a lot easier to hide the attribution of where that money's going. It's like so, I mean, the biggest issue the bureau has with cryptocurrency is you can't you can't track it, and not so much that you can't track the blockchain because you certainly can track those transactions. The problem you get into is storage and application where the block where it entered the blockchain in the sense of where was the transaction original transaction created if that transaction was created at a, at a say a, a cryptocurrency company in china they're not going to give us that information or russia so that's where their anonymity is protected you may see the transaction and it's a, it, it's related to this account on this chinese uh site or whatever we're never good. The bureau is never going to get that information to who that attributions to. That is the benefit that cryptocurrency has largely for the bad guys is the anonymity that it provides. But I agree with you that it becomes a it's probably where currency needs to ultimately go, because I mean, right now there's tons of arguments that I see about, well, it has no value. You get all the poo pooers who say it's, you know, it's play money. What's your perspective on that? That's an interesting point. What is so you, you're you're deep into blockchain technology and stuff is it is it where the future of currency is going to run and or in is is all the people that nay say it are they just traditional economists who don't want to believe that technology can can help with these things my view is that this is the internet gold rush but it's a um, it's a new area and as we saw in the early days of the internet there are lots of isps that came up and didn't survive there are ones that did a, a very good and very thorough job, and they ended up lasting longer. We're kind of in that early gold rush stage right now. Um, I, I want to point out, though, your, your example with the cryptocurrency not being trackable. I would say it's still more trackable than a briefcase full of cash. Yes. No, I, no I, it is trackable. But I, the, it's track, the transaction is trackable. Who's right. behind the transaction is where the problem resolves. That's right. And, and right now, the, the approach to solve that or to address that is the uh, know your customer right. requirement. Yeah, because, I mean, obviously, FBI is always about follow the money. And if you tra- if you move money from Bank of America to Regions Bank, I'm going to be able to get legal process to know who the account holders are on both sides. Cryptocurrency, I can't really do that if I have to go to an account holder in Russia because – Russia is not going to share that information. So, and plus, it's, I mean, you can do it anonymously, and there's lots of ways to anonymize your information and whatever. But, and they, even if, like, if you're using a VPN to conduct your transaction, I can only track the blockchain transaction. I can't track where it originally originated from, especially if it's a VPN that doesn't hold logs. Yeah. You know, the, the other piece of this is, is I, um, I'll be direct with you and say that I don't trust any government. Fair enough. No, I'm with you. My 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 process is all politicians suck. That is my standard standard go to. Um, and I believe that um, it's a human right to have a private conversation with another human. Fair enough. Yep. And and therefore your ability as an FBI guy to look into those communications, I would say that's unwarranted. I would say that that's not something that you have a, a superior right to have to my as a human being right to have a private conversation. 
That's true. And here's the here's the bigger problem. <laughs> look look at the uh, the the downsides to having the ability for uh, anyone else to snoop in on these conversations. It's not just the U.S. government. It's also other governments. It's also advertisers and marketers. It's also criminals and these these credentials and stuff that they capture are not you don't know that they've captured your credentials and how they're going to use it. And and to me, one of the biggest problems is the information asymmetry that this creates. And it's held this information can be held for a long time. So Mm -hmm. maybe right now you're just doing a podcast, but maybe at some point in the future, you want to be a politician. Well, there's all kinds of data they can go back And look at to find out, oh, back here, this is a piece of information we can use and, and, and uh, beef up to be used against you. And because you have no idea that that is, is vulnerable, I, I say that, you know, we have a situation where it's just untenable that we have an Internet that is um, pretty much out in the open and, and um, everyone can see what everyone else is doing. I think there's a real problem. I think what, what, what was really good about the early internet days was we recognized that we needed to have a large number of users for everybody to connect up to this thing. But now we have everyone connecting up. And truth is, Darren, you probably have maybe a hundred destinations that you would say, I want to be able to communicate with these hundred or so sites and and I want them to be able to communicate with me, Mm -hmm. but you don't want the 2 billion people all over the world to have direct access to your machine. Do you? No, I agree. Absolutely. Correct. Yes, I agree. So, and, and I'm, this is kind of a segue into what we're doing with, with, with Centropy. Right. Uh, my, my colleagues in Lithuania um, are developing a, a, a software stack that allows um, endpoints to connect up together uh, to make it just dead easy to have a secure encrypted connection such that only the two endpoints have the mm. decryption keys. So it's a peer to peer. It's a peer in the middle. Right. It's a peer to peer connection. Correct. Is that that's what the, is that the basis for it? Uh, I, yeah, it, 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 it's, it, you can think of it as a peer-to-peer network, but I think of it more as a uh, we're using this WireGuard technology that is the, the most modern, most secure uh, form. Now it's built into all the Linux kernels. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it pretty much the, the de facto standard. What we've done is we made it so that you can easily turn it up and establish an encrypted network between you and the sites that you care about. So that we have everything, every packet encrypted, and there's also an optimization layer. We found out that if we have a peer-to-peer network in place, that we can find out, is it better to send that packet directly to the destination, or is it better, faster, is it more reliable, is it more less jitter and so forth, to send that same packet instead through an intermediary? And if we can do both, if we can optimize the flow of traffic around congestion and encrypt every packet, we have a foundation then that we can build upon and that we as a human species can trust. Yeah, that's that's why I, I was reading your Forbes article from 2019, I believe, and you talked about talked about the latency issue and, and how this kind of resolves that by trying to find the fastest point without just going through, you know, ISPA sends it to ISPB, sends it to ISPC, and there's really not a logical routing that doesn't prevent congestion. You, you, you had a quote in there about um, it's not the bandwidth, it's the content. What did, I forget. I'm, I'm misquoting you now because I just read it this morning. But someone was asking you about why didn't we just increase the bandwidth? And you're like, increasing the bandwidth is not going to fix anything. Correct? You had some point on Yeah, the, the, the fundamental problem is that internet routing doesn't take into account network performance. Right. So routers will happily send traffic along a a path that will drop every other packet. And unless it's a complete break, uh, alternative paths won't be discovered and made and used. So what we've done is we found a way to make use of this internet. And by the way, the internet is uh, fantastic in the sense that it's, it's the world's best transport network. The problem is it's just not trusted. So if you build a trust on top of it and have that secure tunnel across it and make it just dead easy for people to connect across a secure and optimized uh, 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 network, uh, allow them to create their own dynamic encrypted networks. Um, You know, if you think about now, what are we doing with uh, a lockdown? Well, we are all working at home. Mm -hmm. Uh, We need to have a distributed network system and not have to go through a centralized VPN server as a way of connecting to those who we want to work with. 
so our technology matches exactly the distributed workforce of today. So if I'm a business and I was using your 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 framework, so if I had, let's say I had 10 external people working from home and I needed them to connect to my network. Perfect. Then you, I would make it so that the only people that can connect from remotely to my network where all my crown jewels are is any is those there are those devices that is you have Centropy on both ends. Do I have that? Or am yeah. I am looking at that incorrectly? No, no, you're looking at it correctly. Yeah. Uh, all those folks would install the Centropy stack. And uh, what's, what's really neat, too, is it's not just those machines that are connecting together, but you can have finer granularity control over what services that they're allowed to access. You can have a, mm-hmm. a database, you can have a, a, another uh, a service in, in different places, and you can wire them up together into your own private VPN that's really a collective of those nodes, uh, as opposed to having to send all your traffic to a VPN server right. where it goes through bottlenecks and lots of hops before it then goes out to the rest of the internet. And the other thing that's, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I, I just, I, I thought of something. I'll let you, I'll let you finish that thought. Then I have an interesting uh, cybersecurity related question. The other thing I, I noticed uh, doing the, the consulting in the past is when you send all your traffic through that VPN server, it's not just your work traffic. It's all of your traffic, including, you know, you're watching Netflix or these other various things. Um, going through that centralized server, further overloading, and it's just a, a misuse of, of the technology. So we, we think we have a, a paradigm that matches exactly what we need to have to build a secure uh, network layer. And does that prevent uh, an unauthorized third party from getting into the network? So let's obviously the big issues, you know, b- business email compromise, ransomware, the two big crime issues being dealt with today. Would this would that prevent so let's say so let's say a a user is on the network and they're they're checking their email right um and they click the link that they're not supposed to click and it gives a, a an adversary access to their network well i guess I, I, that's a bad example because if if the adversary has access to their computer they then have access to your network through that because the the connection already exists but what about external connections let's say they're able to get in they pivot around your network can they then create an external connection from the network they're now intruded into to wherever they're going to, or because the other end doesn't have Centropy, they wouldn't be able to communicate. Um, you, you, you pointed out a, a key thing about what we're doing. What we're doing is removing the network uh, as the least uh, secure part of a networked application. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if that person double clicks on a link and installs software on their machine, they have violated their machine. Their machine is vulnerable. Right. Uh, and to the extent that that machine is connected to the, the rest of the, the secure network, um, yeah, there, there might be a vulnerability. But the vulnerability is on the host. It's not on the network. Right. Our job is to make sure that the network itself is not the most vulnerable part of the interactions. I got you. I got you. So how do people get engaged? Because I know I went to your website. I, I put my email address in to be a tester to see if I could get in. So I, I don't know when that when that will come. But how do so if people want to want to participate in this? How does it work? Yeah. The, well, there's a, there's a couple of different modes, and I, I've just um, finished a white paper. I need to to put it out there. Uh, there's several different ways to participate. W- one is, of course, as a client. Anyone that wants to download software and make use of it um, can, can do so. The uh, our mission is to make the internet more secure and reliable for everyone. So that's, I mean, full stop. That's mm-hmm. basically what we want to do. So the, the clients um, are available for anybody, but there's these other roles that one can play. And this gets into the, the cryptocurrency and the blockchain piece of it. Um, one of the roles is as a relay. Now, a, a relay node has a very good network connection and has high uptime. And for relaying traffic for others, remember I said we can detect if mm-hmm. it's better to send a packet direct or through one of these intermediaries. Well, these intermediaries serve the role uh, of relaying traffic when they have a better path. And by doing so, they earn tokens. Mm-hmm. And those tokens can then be used themselves for using the better paths of others for their own network. So while you're running the software, you're contributing your better network paths and you're able to use the better network paths of others. In this way, we're tokenizing the relaying of packets. Okay. So relaying is a way to earn tokens. Now these tokens are, um, tradable on open exchanges right now. You can buy Noia tokens, um, and you can sell Noia tokens on KuCoin, uh, Uniswap on Nash, uh, and soon others. Um, so there's way to, ways to monetize a better network connection using 
uh, tokens as a relay. Uh, then another role is a nominator. A nominator is one who nominates a validator uh, for the blockchain. The validator's role is to um, um, apply the transactions that are done. The, the guy who's relaying traffic, he makes a claim that he wants to get paid for his relay traffic. It is the validators that work on the blockchain to validate that transaction and, and author the block on the chain. The nominator's role is to nominate the validators that they trust. Now, all these parties earn a little piece of the pie as this machine keeps on running. In this way, the entire ecosystem, there's an incentive for this ecosystem to grow. And the last piece I talk about in the white paper is the, the staking. Uh, to be a nominator or a validator, uh, you can stake some Noya coins. And by doing so, you earn interest on those coins that you stake. Uh, and the interest is actually pretty high. If you look at the tokenomics paper, uh, it starts like 200% as a validator, a return on your stake. And then as the number of validators increases and the ecosystem gets very, very large, uh, the, the amount of return that you earn gets down to about 25%. And nominators earn tokens as well, just by nominating who they trust as validators. So what's going to happen, I think, for your participation, Darren, is what you'll probably be doing is you want to be a client and you're also going to be a nominator. And by being a nominator, you earn additional tokens that you can then use to get better paths for everybody. So let's talk about being a validator or being a relay. So those, so those two questions. So, so for a relay, is there a specific speed and um, uh, CPU size that you need to be a relay? Because uh, as an example, yeah. I, have a, I have a iMac at my house. It's up all the time. It's on a two gig system. Is that too small to be a relay? Too you know, right size? What's the what are you looking for from a relay perspective? You're looking for more. more Internet service managed service provider type size and speed, or or what what's the what's the the ideal relay size there? Yeah, uh, well, a couple of things. Um, one is that the the relays are automatically selected uh, when they have a better path. They mm. participate in this continuous measurement of one way latency in order to determine right, right. is it better to send the packet directly through an intermediary. Now, chances are your Mac at your home is not the best path on gotcha. the way to anything. Right, sure, fair enough. Yeah, I'm just curious. Just that figure, yeah. so you got to understand, most of the people listening beyond you are, are probably more in the novice area. So, so they're probably thinking, oh, I, I'd be happy to be a relay. I'd be happy to provide that out there. So, yeah, that makes sense. I got you. Uh, but, but having said that, um, I, I had some nodes in um, at people's homes. They, they installed the software on Raspberry Pi. Oh, see, and that's good. They, I, have a resb- I have a Raspberry Pi that is just sitting doing nothing. I'd be happy well, to make that, it. That was the idea for, for the, for the uh, early <laughs> testing. Uh, this Raspberry Pi was the preferred path between Azure and Frankfurt and AWS and Ireland. Wow, really? Yeah, uh, and it, it, was, it was very surprising. But that So anyway, the, the point is the selection of the path is automatic. Right, right, right. Yeah. To be a relay, there are certain technical requirements that you need to meet. Gotcha. And there's other things that come into play like the, the uptime. Um, you know, things like that. Yeah, yeah, I got you. That, that All right. Kind of well, if it helps, I have, a, I have a Raspberry Pi doing nothing. So if you if, if you need a relay in Huntsville, Alabama, I'd be happy to set that up. Just, just tell me what I need to put onto it. But uh, yeah. for, from a validator perspective, so, yeah. you know, I assume a validator is, is, is that equivalent to like a Bitcoin miner, similar kind of? Yeah. yeah. So do they have to have the same kind of energy resources that the Bitcoin miners have, or is it a much smaller platform for doing those kind of calculations? Right. Um, well, the, the, the Bitcoin miners use a technique for achieving consensus and securing the blockchain called proof of work. That is the solving the complicated mm-hmm. math puzzle. And the first one to, to, to solve it uh, gets to author the block and they earn like $15,000 or whatever the right. reward is. Um, we're using a earth friendly, a, a greener approach called proof of stake. Uh, the same technology that the Polkadot uses, which is a $30 billion blockchain. They have an enormous amount of money staked in this thing. So it's battle tested. It's, it's a solid and robust system. And proof of, of stake is a different system. That's the system I described where you have nominators who all put their coins behind the validators that they trust. Mm-hmm. So having all of the clients in the world be nominators so that they can themselves earn tokens to use the system and use the better paths of others, that that secures the system by only electing the validators to author the blocks that are widely trusted. Okay. So this is a, a this is not computing intensive. Right. This is using the uh, basically crowdsourcing, uh, the the, uh, the 
the best validators. Okay. So how many participants do you currently have using your system? Well, we're about to launch the, the test net. Okay. And the, the test net will be the first stage. That's where uh, 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 candidate validators will run the software. Uh, we'll see how the system performs. Uh, we'll start adding in nominators. Uh, I don't have a date. Gotcha. And when we'll publicly accept uh, the validators, but we have a lot of partners that we're uh, currently working with. How many countries have are, are other countries signed on to be part of the part of your network to to as a proof of concept? Because obviously, you know, domestically moving moving package is great, but internationally, that I'm certainly I'm sure has its own host of issues. That ideally, this would resolve from a speed perspective. So, how many countries do you have engaged to to deal with this or to work with you guys as well? Yeah, well, if you look at the the map uh, of our current test environment, it's all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't really know any any bounds. Um, but I, I'll share with you an interesting story. I, I did some work with uh, a, a bunch of different uh, companies through the years, and one of the the big problems that they had was when this content distributor was trying to send traffic from one country to the next. The large telephone company of that uh, destination company. Um, was not allowing the traffic to flow directly. They wanted this content company to become a customer of theirs. So they forced their traffic to go all the way through another country, a much more circuitous route. This is a very common uh, trick. Uh, In fact, you mentioned my book, The Internet Pairing Playbook. Um, I have hundreds of tricks of the trade that I've seen ISPs use in order to uh, force uh, companies to become a customer. And this is one of them. Um, So with our technology, uh, we can override effectively the traffic engineering of the internet service providers. I mean, think about this. Um, If that traffic was going to go that more circuitous route, but the overlay network that we put in place is constantly measuring that it's a more effective path if you force your traffic through this other location before going to the destination, we can override what the ISPs want to see as the routing. Hmm. To me, that's a fundamental change and very disruptive. Now, is that usable? I'm not going to highlight specific countries, but there are certainly authoritarian countries that are very restrictive as to their internet use. Would this resolve issues that those countries impose on their citizens? Um, the technology doesn't know those rules within okay. those individual countries. This is a, an encrypted overlay network. Right, right. You know? So, 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 so if, if I'm in one of these countries and I get on, I can get, get on your network, they're not, are they going to be able to track it? I guess that's an interesting question as well. So let's, you know, t- t- pick a bad country of your choice. I'm not going to highlight a specific one so no one gets in trouble here. But if you had one that is very restrictive to their, 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 um, citizenry's use of the internet per se, and they were able to get on the Centropy network, would the state be able to detect they were using it and, and identify them? Is there protections in place to prevent that from happening to them? I guess the way that I answer the question like that is if you look at the current situation mm-hmm. and the current situation mm-hmm. is they just ask the telephone company, give me all the packets that this right. guy is sending. Yep. Well, what I'll tell you is that with our technology, all they'll get is encrypted traffic. Okay. Good. Yeah. So, so the answer is, unless they got really teed up, because again, the good thing with the encrypted traffic, they don't, they won't know what it says. So, but does it mass? Does it look like any other type of encrypted traffic? Like if I, if they were using a VPN, they were using Express VPN, would it? Would they be able to identify one encrypted packet over another? Probably not. I would assume. It looks like VPN traffic. Gotcha. All encrypted payload, and it's, it's, um, yeah. We're not really trying to be a, a censorship. Um, add sure, 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 sure. It's just a, a happy consequence right. of the in- encryption techniques we're using. Great. So, so let's so let's jump ahead five years. You you deploy this. It's going. How do you think the companies that 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 get value from our data, the, the big tech companies that are currently monetizing all of our data and, and creating the privacy issues that you've talked about initially? How are they going to react to this? Are they going to embrace it, do you think? Are they going to try to kill it? What is the, I mean, I don't know, it's probably not killable in a sense, but how do you, how are they going to act, interact to this? Because if I'm using, if I'm encrypting all my data through your network, they're not going to be really pull. I'm not going to get the Google ads on my browser that when I just search for the latest Ibanez guitar, I'm not going to get an ad on my browser because they couldn't detect it now. How, is, how do you think that's going to impact their thought process about all this? 
Yeah, I can say I would say two things. One is in five years, I believe that um, just as many of us use password managers to protect our passwords and login credentials, uh, we're going to also have um, personally identify information managers. And we are the ones who own that. And we get to decide by them asking, hey, can we have access to your dental records? And we <laughs> say yes or no, depending on whether they're our dentist or not. I think the days of our dentist having a, um, a PC running, um, you know, an old version of Windows and, and having all of our information on there, I think those days are, are numbered. Uh, I think we're going to have a, a different system in place. But the, the other question um, comes up about the content providers and the uh, forward-looking content providers will embrace this. And I'll tell you why. For two decades, Darren, the content guys have asked me as Dr. Peering, the guy who wrote the book on mm-hmm. how internet, internet connection works, um, when can we have better control over our egress routing? Uh, the content providers, unlike the ISPs, the content providers care deeply about the end user experience. And because of that, they have a problem when the uh, service they're buying to get access to those end users is they throw the packet over the wall and wish for the best. It's the best effort service and the ISPs will do the best to get that packet there. That's not good enough. What the content providers want is the ability to identify when there's a problem sending their traffic to a destination and having some knobs they can twist to adjust things. Uh, What they've had to do is on their own stack, they've had to adjust, uh, you know, keep track of how many retransmits they have and throttle up and down the um, resolution of their video or what have you. They've had to do all kinds of things to adjust to the underlying conditions. And what we're saying is we, we can provide you with better knobs. If you install the Centropy Net uh, uh, software on your content distribution hub. Uh, you can then see, is it better to send that traffic directly to the end user or is it measurably and provably better to send that through a relay? Maybe there's a, another node in the system that actually has better access to that destination. Uh, so things like that should allow the content providers to have some more knobs to be able to adjust their, their, their traffic flow. Um, and like I said, they've been asking for that for decades. Now, as to what they do with the, the personally identifiable information, that remains the same. They right. still have access to whatever they had before. The difference is the traffic between them and the eyeballs are encrypted. So right. only the eyeballs and the content provider can see what's exchanged between the two. I got you. That's, well, that's cool. So let me ask you, so you're, you're probably the only person I'll talk to, or I maybe I'll find other people eventually, but... Give me your perspective, and, and this is not something we talked about beforehand. It just kind of came to me as we were talking about that. But the the, the documentary, the social dilemma. Any mm-hmm. thoughts on that? I assume you've watched it. Uh, yeah, um, it's it's really eye opening, and I'm really thrilled that um, uh, such prominent people on the content provider side mm-hmm. came out and said, "Hey, this is a, this is a big problem." Um, I, I think we've inadvertently just trusted that. You know, uh, who's going to care about this information? Right. But I'll, I'll tell you one other story that changed my mind on that. A Wired article uh, where this guy was trying out this new location-aware software on his iPhone. And he went to the Golden Gate Bridge, and he took a picture of uh, this woman who was taking a picture of the Golden Gate Bridge. And went back, and he found out that from the geolocation, he could find out who that person was because they posted the picture around the same time. Right. And not only that, but the pictures that she had taken, uh, there was a map that you could show where those pictures were taken. And you could find out that her jogging path every morning was from 8 o'clock until about 8.45, and then round trip was this way. And there were pictures inside of her house that showed all the stuff that she had in her house. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, this is an unintended consequence of trying to be open and share with your friends this stuff. But boy, that's just one little piece of it. When you tie together the other information that's available about us, um, I think we're in a very bad and dangerous place. Right. How many kids do you have? I have four kids. How old are they, if you don't mind me asking? Um, I'll just say I have three teenage daughters, which is why I don't sleep very much. <laughs> ah, fair enough. So so what, what, is your, what do you do for them? Because I did, I did an episode a couple weeks ago on protecting your kids and i'm not we're not going to go into another 45 minutes of protecting your kids but how do you how do you deal with that because obviously you've been you've seen it all happen you've seen it all expand over time what do you tell your kids and what do you allow them to do uh online i you know i i assume you're a protective father so so what's your perspective on that how do you deal with it um 
it, it's a it's a really tough thing. I, I thought maybe parental controls would be helpful, but it turns out they're not. Mm-hmm. Uh, the parental controls that Apple initially put out uh, would uh, make you have to enter a password every time a different CDN server was delivering a different piece <laughs> of the puzzle to the. So it was just un, unworkable. Uh, I haven't seen that it's gotten a whole lot better uh, since then. Um, my my answer is education. My answer is I force them to sit down and watch. Uh, this the social dilemma. That's and, great. And um, remind them to to uh, log off of the computer. Um, you know, most of the things that kids have to face these days, um, if they make a mistake, it's not going to scar their life forever. But that's not true with the technology we have here. Right. Uh, things you do is stored forever, and it's hard to communicate that permanence notion to those who are of the age, their frontal cortex is not fully mm-hmm. developed and they're not thinking in terms of, you know, what's this going to look like when I'm 30 and I'm trying to get a job. <laughs> right. Know? How bad, how bad would it have been if all this stuff existed from 1982 to 1986? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, like, like I said, we, we, we do stupid things. <laughs> exactly. and we're just, we're just lucky that nobody got it wasn't injured. recorded. Right. Yes. I remember. Do you remember do you remember the brain? No, that was the year after. After you graduated, we had a party in the suite because we went from eight of us in that suite to f- six of us the next year. And we had a yeah, we had a party at the beginning of the school year that was interesting. So fortunately, there were no cell phones to capture any of it or any of that kind of stuff. But anyway, so well, Bill, I greatly appreciate your time. We could go on and on with this stuff forever. I hope we I hope we could we continue it offline. Because I'm very interested in what you guys are doing, because I think from a privacy perspective standpoint, it's got to be the way the future goes forward and more people need to get engaged in it if they really want to protect their data and their privacy. Um, hopefully politicians will listen to you, but my, my perspective is all politicians are stupid, but that's just me. So I appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure, Darren. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks. Well, that's going to do it for episode 38 of the Cyber Guy podcast. I appreciate you taking the time to listen. I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Bill Norton. He is a smart guy with a lot of good information. It'll be interesting to see how the Centropy Net and, and the things that they're doing come to fruition as the years progress. As always, if you have questions or thoughts about the podcast, feel free to email me, Darren at thecyberguy.com. You can also find me on LinkedIn, linkedin.com slash Darren Mont, no spaces, anything like that. As you go through your week, make sure you understand the threats targeting you, assess your risk appropriately, proceed wisely, and remember, knowledge is protection. Thanks again for listening. Have a good week.